Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. We've got our heads in the clouds today on Weather Geeks. When you see clouds dotting the skyscape, you may only think about how picturesque they look, but they actually play very important roles in weather and climate. Today's guest is Dr. Allison Wien, who has been studying the presence of patterns and clouds in the warming world and how they're accounted for in our climate models. Since clouds can affect our planet's radiation budget, it's important we know how they will behave in an increasingly warming world. Dr. Wing and her colleagues have developed climate models to help answer some of those questions. Allison, I'm going to call you Dr. Wing. Thank you for joining us. Anytime I have a fellow FSU colleague on, I feel like I know them, although we've just met. But uh, Professor Wing, let me give a little bit of her background. And I'm going to ask you the question that I always ask every single Weather Geeks guest, uh, which is how you became a weather geek. But before we get to that, let me give some of her background. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences at Florida State University, also an adjunct associate research scientist at Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory. She was, and I just saw this on Twitter, congratulations on this, by the way. She was recently named one of Popular Science's Brilliant 10, and I want to find out more about that. She received her PhD in Atmospheric Sciences from MIT in 2014 and was advised by Professor Carrie Emanuel who has been a guest on this podcast. And she has a BS in atmospheric sciences from Cornell University. So the question I ask every guest, how did you become a weather geek or are you one? <laughs> well, thank you very much, Dr. Shepard, for having me on Weather Geeks. And you're welcome to call me Allison. Um, and yeah, so I think I think many meteorologists do have a bit of an origin story, um, how they first got interested in weather. And I have one as well. When I was five years old, I was on vacation with my family in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, when uh, we were hit by Hurricane Bob. And um, I found it very exciting, all of the wind and rain. We had to evacuate our beach house, you know, into a local, you know, gymnasium at a school evacuation center. And it just, it was exciting. And it sort of piqued my interest in the weather. Looking back on it now, I think it probably was a stressful experience for my parents, but uh, for me, it was just fun. And so after that, I always had an interest in weather, um, always kind of found it fascinating. When I was in middle school, I actually watched the Weather Channel every single day. Um, you know, people like Jim Cantori and Steve Forbes and Paul Cosin and Paul Goodloe and all of all of those guys. And yeah, it was it was always really, really fun and fascinating for me. Actually, I kept a journal um, where I wrote down what the weather forecast was every day. <laughs> yeah, it sounds um, like my experience as a, as a sixth grader as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, it's it's amazing how consistent many of the stories I hear are on as we talk to experts on this, on this platform. So how did you make your way from Cornell to the legendary Carrie Emanuel in MIT? Tell it, walk us through that timeline. Sure. So d- despite my kind of, yeah, long interest, longstanding interest in weather, I, I didn't necessarily always dream of becoming a meteorologist. I didn't always necessarily envision that as a career. I actually almost ended up going to college to study physics because I really liked physics when I was in high school. 
But I wanted to study something more directly applied um, and more kind of day-to-day relevant to people in society. And so that kind of led me back to my original interest in meteorology. And um, I went to Cornell to to study atmospheric science. Um, One of the things you know, that attracted me to Cornell was it had a really strong but small program in atmospheric science. So you really got to know your fellow students and professors really well. And I had a great time there. I loved the department there and loved the university. While I was in undergrad, I had the opportunity to do some undergraduate research in the summer. I had a summer REU at Lamont Darty Earth Observatory at Columbia University, which is near where I'm from. I'm from White Plains, New York originally. And so I had, I did a summer research project at Lamont um, after my sophomore year of college with um, Professor Adam Sobel and Susanna Camargo on hurricane research. We had a project investigating the potential intensity of tropical cyclones, which is this, you know, theoretical maximum intensity given the thermodynamics of the environment, which um, was developed by, by Carrie Emanuel. And I really loved that research project. It was, um, my first foray into research of any type, including, you know, atmospheric science or hurricane research. And that experience really convinced me that I wanted to pursue research as a career and specifically hurricane research. And so then when it came time to look for graduate programs, um, I was like, well, I want to go to MIT and study with Carrie because he is the absolute, you know, most, you know, well-known foremost expert in hurricanes. And so I kind of wanted to go and study with the best. The kind of funny thing is that my PhD ended up not being about hurricanes at all. Um, My PhD thesis was about self-aggregation of tropical convection, um, which is how convective systems, you know, organize and clump together. And it was all entirely non-rotating. I had, I did all these cloud resolving model simulations with zero rotation in them. So no hurricanes, but, but I've managed to circle back uh, to studying hurricanes now. Yeah. And that's, that's a common story, to be honest with you, uh, as someone who did his PhD at Florida state university, I, I used, uh, models to look at uh, interacting convergence zones in Florida and the precipitation efficiency. That's nothing close to what people know me for uh, these days in terms of my research agenda and so forth. So that's, a, for those of you listening, particularly students, uh, oftentimes you'll, your career will take you in different paths from your study uh, in terms of your graduate degrees. Now I want to kind of shift and kind of put our heads in the clouds, so to speak, because I know that's an area that you think quite a bit about. And, you know, one of the things you often hear Uh, when you bring up climate models, there's this sort of tired narrative, I would argue that, oh, we can't, by some people, that we can't trust climate models and they're not accurate. I mean, those are sort of um, narratives that we know aren't true. Our climate models are quite good today. But one of the things you'll often hear sort of a lone contrarian say at times, well, you you don't know anything about the clouds Mm -hmm. or what's going on with clouds. And to some degree, that's where some of the biggest uncertainties certainly have been. So, how did you get your heads in the cloud? I mean, you just kind of told us a little bit about that, but give the listeners a 101 and sort of the role that clouds play in our weather climate system. Yeah, clouds are, are hugely important for our climate. Um, the, the I guess the biggest factor is that we just have a lot of clouds all of the time. If you look at a satellite image of Earth, you know, mostly what you see are white clouds covering a large fraction of the, of the Earth, you know, of the planet. And that means that they have a big influence on um, our energy budget of the planet. So clouds kind of have two roles. 
They both reflect sunlight, which helps cool the planet, but they also absorb the infrared radiation that the earth emits up into the atmosphere. And that keeps the planet warm. And those kind of two roles, they make clouds important, but they also make them complicated because those are opposing influences, right? They have a cooling effect and a warming effect. And which one wins out depends on the type of cloud, where it is, how high the cloud is, how much water is in it, how bright it is. And, and so that's why when we're trying to model clouds, um, it is something that that has uncertainty associated with it because we're trying to represent all of those different cloud properties. And, you know, having a little bit of that balance off can mean our actual answer, you know, has the opposite sign or something like that. And of course, the other thing that makes it challenging is that clouds happen, occur on scales that can be pretty small. Um, you know, look, look out to the sky, see the size of those little puffy clouds versus the grid boxes we do use in our climate models, which are, you know, 100 kilometers, 200 kilometers. So those cloud processes have to be parametrized in those those global climate models. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, and so we're always also trying to work to a, a better understand how clouds affect our climate system, um, but also how we can model them better. And, you know, so what I do is mostly cloud resolving modeling where we run models at much, much higher resolution so we can actually explicitly represent the clouds. Yeah, and I want to kind of, you heard Don, Dr. Wing mention parameterization. Sometimes the grid cell is just too big to represent actually what's going on in the model. And so we have to sort of use sort of ways to represent those processes without sort of explicitly. But I know some of the models are getting down to the resolution. I, For example, uh, in my department here at the University of Georgia, Professor Gabe Cooperman, who I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he had worked uh, quite a bit with Dave Randall's group in the super parameterization, which is his idea of trying to use some of these cloud resolving models that Professor Wien works with to sort of, I guess, kind of plug them into the, the grid scales of the climate models to more explicitly represent these cloud processes. Now, I mentioned something in the introduction that may have been a little bit of jargon to those that aren't scientists like you and myself. I mentioned the planet's radiation balance. Can you, and I often talk about it in terms of our checking and savings accounts and things like that to help my students understand, but give, give the listeners a 101 of what we mean by that radiation balance, because that certainly is important for sort of the climate processes and cloud processes. Yeah, and so the radiation balance basically refers to the flow of, of heat through our, our climate system. You know, we get energy from the sun. So the sun shines on the earth that heats the earth's surface and atmosphere. Um, and then the earth cools by, as all objects do, emitting what's called infrared or long wave radiation. It's, you know, it's fundamentally the same as just we're much colder than, than the sun is. So we, we have our heat emitted at a different wavelength. And that kind of input of energy from the sun and how much the earth is cooling in on average and over the long term, that has to balance out for us to be equilibrium and the planet to have, you know, a stable climate. Um, but the process by which it does that is really complicated. You know, we get more sunlight coming in near the equator in the tropics than we do in high latitudes. And that's because of how the earth is tilted um, on its axis. And then that heat is redistributed throughout the atmosphere and ocean by our weather systems and large scale circulations, including the ocean currents and things like that. 
And then, um, and then we have the cooling back by the infrared radiation. And so we have what's called this, yeah, planetary energy balance or radiative balance. And when we think about climate change, what causes climate change is when that energy balance or the radiation balance is sort of tweaked a little bit and perturbed. We all of a sudden have more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which is changing how much of the infrared radiation we're emitting is actually making it out to space. And so it keeps our planet a little bit warmer. Um, well, we actually have to warm up to then balance that out to make sure that we emit enough to balance the, the incoming sunlight radiation, sunlight. And so basically you tweak, you tweak things in the atmosphere that affect our amount of radiation, whether that's a greenhouse gas like CO2 or, you know, sulfate aerosols, which reflect sunlight, any sort of tweaks you make, um, the, the, the rest of the radiative energy budget has to sort of readjust itself to come back into equilibrium. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Professor Allison Wing at Florida State University. Go Knowles, by the way. Um, I want to kind of bring up this idea of water vapor. You did an excellent job sort of talking about radiation balance and greenhouse gases and so forth. Uh, carbon dioxide clearly is the sort of uh, big dog on the block uh, to use my UGA connections here. Um, but there are other greenhouse gases and, you know, people are quick to say, well, water vapor is a greenhouse gas. So what role does moisture play in a warming world? There's been a lot of conversations about this lately because we have these extreme rain rates from the remnants of Ida, for example, and floods all, all over the nation. And so you'll hear people talking about Clausius Clapeyron, which is this idea that as temperature warms uh, can quote unquote, hold more water vapor. So talk about the role of water vapor and its importance to clouds in our climate system. Yeah, it's, so it's interesting. Last last spring, I was teaching a, a graduate class on atmospheric convection, which is basically about thunderstorms and how they form and develop. And we started off by talking about dry convection, you know, Rayleigh-Bernard convection, stuff like that. And, and then we said, well, what happens when we add water vapor to the equation? Um, it Water vapor is of fundamental importance for how our weather works and how our climate system works. It, it changes so many things um, about how, how those things work. We Water vapor, one of its big important roles is that it itself is a greenhouse gas. It's actually probably our most important greenhouse gas. So just like carbon dioxide, water vapor absorbs long wave radiation um, emitted by the earth and you know, helps trap that heat. Water vapor also absorbs uh, sunlight as well. Um, and so you can have shortwave heating from that. And so um, it plays a role in that radiative energy balance. It also, of course, um, from water vapor, we form clouds and then clouds themselves, as we discussed earlier, play a big role in that radiative balance. And then the water vapor sometimes rains out and that brings us, you know, the precipitation from our storm systems. But one of the unique things about water vapor is that the amount we have in the atmosphere is tied to how warm 
the temperatures are. This Clausius-Clapeyron relationship, which you know, it just is comes from basic thermodynamics, kind of fundamental physics. And um, basically it says that an atmosphere that is warmer has more water vapor in it. Your saturation vapor pressure actually goes up exponentially with temperature. And so that means as the planet warms, we have more water vapor in the atmosphere, which has a positive feedback on the amount of warming that we'll get. Because now we're not just you know, having more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere as an increased greenhouse gas, but the warming from that causes us to have more water vapor which is a greenhouse gas itself. And so that water vapor feedback amplifies the amount of warming that we get from changing the amount of carbon dioxide. But it also affects storm systems and weather systems. Like you mentioned, we have um, more, in general, more heavy precipitation when we have more moisture in the atmosphere. And so that's the fundamental reason why heavy precipitation events are expected to increase with warming. And you heard uh, Professor Wing talk about positive feedbacks, and she alluded to a positive and negative feedbacks earlier when she talked about this notion of whether we will have more high clouds or low clouds, and you know whether that happens determines whether the we have a net increase in warming uh, because of the already sort of happening global warming, or uh, there's some suggestion that certain clouds, depending on how they're distributed in the vertical, would lead to a cooling because they're reflecting more of the sun's shortwave radiation as it comes in. That's a negative feedback. But I, I just wanted to kind of use this to kind of step a little bit on my one soapbox that I have from a science communication standpoint. We as scientists often refer to things as a positive feedback and to the public uh, positive as a word that sounds like something good, doesn't it? But some of the positive feedbacks that happen because of, uh, you know, changes in clouds or perhaps reduction in sea ice in the Arctic can lead to more warming. So uh, I, that's one of the things I've written about in one of my articles. And I think also I, I saw it in an article by Susan Hassel in Somerville as well. But that's just an aside. I want to get to... Um, I guess a paper that was published in the Journal of Advances in Modeling Earth Systems in 2020. And from my understanding, you're involved with a group of international scientists to understand uh, the impacts of clouds in a warming world using a new model or new model simulations. Tell us a little bit more about that work. Yeah. So as we've discussed, you know, clouds and how they respond to climate change are one of the biggest sources of uncertainty in our future projections of warming. And so we'd like to better understand what controls how clouds change in response to warming and you know, what implications that has for our climate system. And so I am indeed, I lead a international, what's called a MIP, a model intercomparison project, which is basically where we take lots of different weather and climate models uh, of different types from different groups, different centers around the world and have them all simulate the same thing, have them all you know, have the same parameters, uh, you know, controlling the inputs into the model, the same surface temperature, the same amount of sunlight coming in, all that kind of stuff, and then see what the models do. And things that all of the models tend to do are usually then what we call robust responses, something that we think, okay, this is something all these models agree on. And so it's probably pretty solid how the, that that response is going to happen. But then we can also look at where the models disagree um, and then try to explain why by looking at what's different amongst the models. So we do this a lot in climate modeling. There's millions of MIPs out there. The most well-known one is CMIP, which is the Coupled Model Intercomparison Project, which is where they run the climate models over the historical uh, climate and then make future projections based on guesses for how future emissions will look like. 
Um, and those are kind of the models that make up a lot of the information in the IPCC report. But the but what we did for our project, which is called RCE MIP, radiative convective equilibrium MIP, is we ran the models in a much more idealized setting. So instead of trying to simulate the real Earth and the real climate system, we said, okay, let's just simulate them as if the whole model domain, the whole world was just covered by tropical oceans. And so they all have sort of sunlight coming in, characteristics of the tropics. They have the same sea surface temperature everywhere. There's no land. There's, you know, no, you know, nothing, nothing going on except for convection, except for, you know, clouds forming and deep thunderstorms forming and then whatever circulations you know, develop as a result of that. And so it's a good idealization of the tropics in particular. And tropical clouds are um, actually in, in a recent sort of assessment, they are actually the biggest contributor to the overall certainty is the tropical clouds specifically, in part just because the tropics are really big, like two thirds of the Earth's surface is covered by the tropics. Um, and so using this idealization kind of it removes some of the other complexities and lets us focus just on tropical clouds and say, OK, we throw all these different models at it. What what do they get? And one of the other kind of unique things about that project was that it included models of lots of different types. So it included climate models that were running on coarse grid spacing where they have to parametrize a lot of processes. But it also included models running at much, much higher resolution called cloud resolving models or large eddy simulation models where those processes could actually be resolved and simulated explicitly. And so it's sort of unique because usually it's kind of difficult to compare those two types of models in the same setting. Um, but this, because it's such a simple setup, we're actually able to compare them and say, OK, so maybe, you know, we might trust how the higher resolution models simulate clouds better. And we can use that to kind of validate in some sense what the climate models are doing. So I guess the million dollar question, if I'm a, a congressman from Florida or a senator, she sees you on the elevator. What have you, what have you learned? We learned that it's complicated. <laughs> um, That's a Facebook status. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's complicated. Um, basically, I mean, we learned a couple of things. We learned that all of these models have um, the ability for clouds to spontaneously clump together, um, which is this process called self-aggregation that I studied for my PhD. Um, and it basically is where, yeah, the clouds decide to cluster together and not because we told them to, not because there's something, you know, in the boundary conditions of the model that say they have to cluster, get, cluster together there, but rather because of interactions between the clouds and the radiation and the moisture and all of and their environment. And that was something that had been found earlier, but, you know, had only been studied in a couple of models. And so it was really reassuring to see that that happened across all of these models. And we also found that that process of clustering actually affected the simulated mean climate. So when the clouds were clustered together, the, the simulated atmosphere in the models was warmer, it was um, drier on average, and it had fewer clouds on average. So when the clouds are clumped together, there's less overall than if they're scattered apart. And because of that, um, the degree of clustering in the models, as well as how that clustering changed with warming, if we increase the surface temperatures, that affected how sensitive the, the different models were to an external forcing, like how they would change and respond to increasing CO2. 
basically the ones where we have more clustering of warming, they end up having what's called a, a lower uh, climate sensitivity, which means they wouldn't warm actually quite as much. Um, so the clustering can kind of help, um, increased clustering can kind of help reduce the, the effect of warming that we get. Now, the, the, the part that's complicated is that all the models did this clustering in different ways. <laughs> and some of them said it increased with warming, some of them said it decreased. Um, and so it's one of those things where like, it definitely makes an impact, but we're still not sure about what it actually is gonna do. Um, but it was really, you know, interesting to kind of see those responses. And, you know, I, I like to use, especially these idealized simulations as, you know, they're not representing reality exactly. We know that. But we can still learn a lot from them and sort of think of them as, you know, this is our laboratory to explore, you know, how things vary, right? You can't, we can't go out there and, you know, just all of a sudden change the number of clouds there are in the atmosphere, but you can do that in a model. Um, and so it kind of lets us, it's a great tool for us to kind of probe the detailed mechanisms behind all these different things work. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we're back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm talking with Professor Allison Wing from Florida State University. I know you also are doing work in terms of how clouds and tropical cyclones interact. Um, what is the cloud greenhouse effect and how do you think tropical cyclones might be impacted? Yeah, so I mentioned before that we studied in just in general how clouds and convection cluster together and it was the result of these interactions between clouds and radiation. And it turns out that those, those interactions um, can play a role in tropical cyclone development as well, which you could think of tropical cyclones and hurricanes as just a sort of special type of convective organization, one that spins and is very intense. So basically what we've, what we've found um, is that when you have um, a disturbance, um, a tropical disturbance that you know may become a tropical cyclone, you have more deep thunderstorm clouds kind of in the center of that disturbance compared to the outside environment where it's clearer. And those tall, deep thunderstorm clouds, they affect the radiative heating and cooling. And in particular, they cause cooling at the top of the clouds and then warming of the atmosphere below those deep thunderstorm clouds. And in particular, more warming in that location compared to the surroundings where it's more clear sky air. And so you have this local atmospheric warming, which anytime you have spatial differences in where it's heating more in one area than another, that causes changes to the atmospheric circulation. So because of this sort of locally enhanced warming from the deep thunderstorm clouds in the core of the developing cyclone, you have that favors rising motion there, it favors moistening, and it strengthens the overturning circulation of the tropical cyclone, where you were bringing in now more air at the surface in towards the center of the storm, um, more air rising, and that helps the hurt, intensifying that circulation helps the hurricane spin up, you know, transporting more angular momentum in towards the center. And um, so we found in model simulations that 
when you turn turn that process off, if we go in the model and make the clouds invisible to radiation, that the hurricane takes like twice as long to form as when um, you have that process going on. And there's been some other work by a few other groups now that have you know, confirmed that in other situations and we're starting to see evidence for it in observations as well. So it's that's sort of one of the kind of big current areas of my research is better understanding that process and exactly how important it is for real hurricanes. Um, and the other thing that we found that's really interesting about that is that not only did it affect the formation of the hurricane, but once the hurricane is formed, it seemed to affect how quickly it intensified. And that's one of the things where we still have a lot of forecasting challenges in predicting how rapidly storms intensify. And it sort of suggests that maybe these sort of cloud interactions and cloud radiation interactions are things that we need to look at more carefully in our forecast models and um, you know, target as an area of improvement perhaps. And I was I was just about to go there because I could clearly see sort of an applications operational significance of research. And for those listening, you know, these days we don't we're still doing research for basic understanding and knowledge. But oftentimes uh, this knowledge gain leads to applications across the fence into the operational world. And I know that you're using the NCAR supercomputers to do this, these uh, experiments and really is a good example of just sort of applications of sort of supercomputing, uh, meteorological research, and ultimately down the road, perhaps, uh, I guess, applications more operational. Now, I want to leave sort of the meteorological realm of Dr. Allison Wing and get to some really cool things that have been bestowed upon you. One of which I mentioned earlier is this popular science's brilliant 10. That sounds really cool. And popular science is a well-known brand. And so to me, it's a big deal. Tell us a little bit about what that is and and why do you think you were uh, acknowledged in that way? Yeah. So popular science, they, I think they used to do it every year. They had a couple of years off and they brought it back this year. They come up with this list of what they say, the, the 10 most, you know, innovative, you know, brilliant young minds in science and engineering. So it's supposed to target, you know, early people kind of early in their career um, who are making really fascinating and important contributions, you know, across science and engineering as a whole. And so they have this sort of nationwide search where they, you know, learn about researchers in all different fields. Um, and then select the ones that they think are really interesting and, and doing really innovative work. And so I'm, you know, I was really excited to get to be featured. I was definitely surprised as well. I didn't really anticipate that they were going to select me. Um, but it's really cool to be a part of, you know, the other, some of the other people that are included in the list are, you know, scientists doing, you know, medical research and um, inventing really cool um instruments or tools in engineering. So it's really incredibly diverse and exciting sort of group of people. Um, And I think, you know, for me, I was also just really excited that climate science and atmospheric science just in general was a topic that they felt, you know, was important enough and exciting enough to include in such a list. And I mean, I think you know, us as, as, you know, atmospheric scientists, obviously we think it's important and exciting, but to kind of have that, you know, recognized by, you know, a publication that does have, you know, as much, you know, history and sort of standing as popular science was really amazing. So what's next for Dr. Allison Wing on the research front or any other fronts for that matter, next zero to five years? 
I mean, I'm going to continue um, investigating these questions about um, hurricane development, tropical cyclone development. You know, my sort of near-term focus, as I mentioned, is better understanding this cloud radiation feedback or cloudy greenhouse effect on hurricane development. Um, in general, you know, that's a, a big interest of mine. We, you know, there's we've come so far in our understanding of tropical cyclones. Our forecasts have improved tremendously. But there's still a lot that we don't know. We still don't have a accepted theory for tropical cyclone formation or for global tropical cyclone frequency. We don't. We know there's about 90 tropical cyclones worldwide every year, but we don't know why it's that number. Why is it 90? Why not 900 or 30 or something like that? And that also that lack of a complete understanding it makes it difficult for us to to know about how with regards to the number of tropical cyclones to know how that might change in the future. Um, and so, you know, I'm looking forward to kind of continuing to research, you know, the basic kind of understanding of, of hurricane development and try to work to, to improve, or to answer that question um, as well as, you know, this broader question of how does organization of convection, whether it's in hurricanes or as other types of weather systems, you know, how does that work and, and how does that affect our climate system? So I think we're making progress, but we still got a lot to, to do. And I'm excited to kind of continue studying those problems. I can't, you know, this, I just thought of this question because we're coming to an end, but I, I you're, you're a young scholar really at the top of your game. And increasingly there are more women in the field of atmospheric sciences, but still not where we need to be. Uh, what advice would you give for any young scholar, particularly a young young woman that's listening to you right now as you've sort of navigated your early career? Um, I guess not to give up and to just keep, you know, working on what you're passionate in, um, find good mentors out there. I've benefited so much from that kind of early opportunity to gain research experience and, you know, the scientists that I've worked with along the way, both, you know, those initial research mentors, as well as my, you know, PhD mentor, they've been enormously important for me. Um, and so to kind of find good mentors who can advocate for you um, and support you um, is really important. And it's something that I certainly hope to be, you know, I have my own graduate students now working as a professor and um, to me, you know, mentoring them as scientists and as people and how they kind of develop and evolve throughout their career is as important to me as, you know, the actual science re results that we get. And it's immensely rewarding. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I have a really great specific piece of advice other than just to keep, keep working on it and, you know, pursue your dreams and, you know, take advantage of, you know, the support that's out there for you. Where, where can people find you on social media or the internet? Um, yeah, I'm on Twitter at Allie underscore wing. Um, I also have my FSU website, which is a sort of complicated URL. But if you just Google Allison Wing FSU, you usually can find me. Um, but I am on Twitter, not the most active, but I'm close to a thousand followers. So maybe I'll maybe I'll hit a thousand after after this podcast. We're going to make sure you are going well past a thousand after this podcast. We can help out with that. Great. I will definitely tweet you out a shout out here at the end of the taping, in fact. So we're going to make sure you get over a thousand. So thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. 
Before I get out of here, it's time for the Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist, superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Alan Huffman. Alan has been a meteorologist in the Carolinas for the past two decades and loves sharing with his followers not only what's going on, but why it's happening as well. Some of his most memorable events are Hurricanes Matthew and Florence, both of which impacted the Carolinas. If you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages. Professor Wing, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you for having me. I am Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and thank you always for listening. And we will talk to you next time on Weather Geeks. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.